Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Happy New Year. Welcome back. This is the first episode of the new year. Happy 2022. I'm delighted to have Lou Matthews as my guest. He's got a new novel out called Shaky Town, available now from Tiger Van Books. Great time meeting Lou. Great time talking with Lou. That's coming up in just a minute. I also have some news to share, a bit of good news, and I'll get to that in a moment. I hope you had a nice holiday season. Mine was fine. It went okay. It was it was good. I'm not complaining. It was chaotic. I knew that it would be. I've talked about this. I feel like I predicted it, and it was chaotic and draining. The kids had fun. My sisters were supposed to come out, but then COVID intervened. One of my nieces got COVID. My sister got influenza A. Everything got canceled at the last minute. Flights, hotels, 24 hours before everybody was supposed to convene. It was crazy. I was on the phone with customer service, canceling my hotel at like 11 o'clock at night on Christmas Eve. I had to eat $600. You know what I mean? It was that kind of thing. And my son, too, he had a virus over the holidays. Not COVID, not influenza, but uh, a cold. He was coughing. So, you know, we had to cancel. It was a big disappointment for the kids. My daughter was crying. The cousins were all upset. You know what I mean. But I think we made the right call. It was the only call we could have made. And all I can think about is what would have happened had my sisters gotten on those planes. Because... You know, my one sister had COVID in her family. My other sister had to cancel because she had close exposure to somebody who had COVID. And all I can think about is what would have happened had they gotten on those planes and flown out here. It was rainy that whole week in Southern California. So we would have been huddled together, largely indoors. 
there would have been multiple communicable diseases floating around in the air, and everybody would have been overtired and coughing on each other, and people would have been shedding, <laughs> shedding virus everywhere. Can you imagine? And then on top of it all, it was the holidays. It was Christmas. All the kids wound up. All the kids overtired. Everybody had a fever pitch. It's too much. And, uh, you know, I know that I'm, I can be a little bit grumpy about the holidays. I just want you to know I want the kids to have a good time. I always have. I just feel like it's too much. I feel like it's uh, insanity for everybody to insist on going to the airport at the exact same time and trying to do all this when everybody is maximally tired from work and life and financial pressure and a global pandemic. Enough already. So anyway, it was fine. It worked out. The kids, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll all get together at a different time when everything's not so nutty. But, uh, as I was saying at the top of the show, I also have a bit of news, some good news related to my book. I'll give you a quick book update. As many of you know, I have a new novel coming out later this year. It is called be brief and tell them everything. And it's due out on May 10th from IG publishing and it is now available for pre-order. So you can now pre-order my new book directly from the publisher at igpub.com. That's igpub.com. Or at any major bookseller online. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, IndieBound, you name it. So if you're unfamiliar with the pre-order process, all that it means is that you're buying the book ahead of time. You buy it now you make the purchase. And then when we get to publication, uh, later this year in May, the book will ship directly to your door. It's easy and it matters and it really helps, uh, pre-orders for those of you who don't know, make a big difference to a book's chances of success. They help to determine bookstore response, how many copies are bought, how many, you know, which books are stocked. And then they also have an impact on bestseller lists. So I'm hoping to get some pre-orders. I'm hoping that you guys out there, listeners of this program will step up and lend a hand and pre-order my book. Will you please do that? Is it possible? Can I convince you? I think maybe the easiest way to do it is to just go to bradlisty.com, which incidentally is newly refurbished. I can't remember if I told you that either. Uh, that's some news, bradlisty.com. It got a makeover. Go check it out. You can see all the blurbs for the book. You can read about the book, find out what it entails. You can see my new author photo, <laughs> which, uh, is there as well. It, you know, that was a process I'm trying to think if I've talked about that. My buddy Dove Shore took the picture and he's a really good photographer, like a true professional who does magazine covers and whatnot and gets hired to fly to Lake Como to take pictures of supermodels in their underwear and so on. And I convinced him to take my author photo and he was very patient with me. I'm not a great subject. I don't love to be photographed. I'm not that good at it. I don't know how to do it. And in particular, I don't know how to do an author photo because I feel like there's no good way to do one. If you smile, then I feel like that's kind of hateful and people will look at it and just want to punch you or something. And if you don't smile, then I think you just look pretentious or self-serious. So it's, it's, it's a no win. 
And I have Dove taking time out of his day to photograph me, and I'm standing there trying to uh, make it easy on him. He's asking me to do things and look certain ways and all this stuff, and I did not smile. Uh, And I think if I had a strategy, I was just trying to look calm. I just wanted to look... (laughs) I just wanted to look like placid and inoffensive. So I don't know. I did the best I could. You can check it out over at my website, bradlisty.com. And I also want to say regarding pre-orders that the news went out on social media earlier this week, and many of you have already pre-ordered the book, which I appreciate a ton. So I want to let you know, if you're new to this, that I'm doing a special promotion around pre-orders. It's pretty simple. If you pre-order my book, and then you send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase, I will give you a shout-out in the monologue on this program. I will also send you a handwritten note in the mail along with a special Other People sticker. Can you believe that? I'll send you a sticker and a note in the mail if you pre-order my book and then send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase. Just email it to me. The email address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Or you can tweet it to me. The show is at OtherPPL on Twitter. You can DM it. Or you can DM it to me on Instagram. The show on Instagram is at OtherPPL.podcast. So, having said all that, let me get to the first round of thank yous to some of my earliest pre-order people. People who have pre-ordered my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. A big, huge thank you to Greg Boos, Max Greenfield, Sue Henderson, Jim Taone, Tiffany Shine, Ashley Kaplan, Max Roman, Patrick Hart, Dr. Caroline Fosnell, Ben Laurie, Lisa Stransky-Brown, Kyle Thorpe, Gloria Hahn, Ryan Volker, Gotti Harrell, Stacey Harmon, Michelle McCormick, and Mike Glasgow. Thank you guys for pre-ordering the book. One more time, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. To pre-order your copy today, just go to bradlisty.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Amazon Crossing, publisher of the novel Blue by Emily Prophet. Blue won the Grand Prix Littéraire de l'Association d'Écrivains de Langue Française in 2009. How did I do on that with my French? Blue is poetic and gorgeous and occupies the liminal spaces between memory and life. Emily Prophet, this is her first novel translated into English. Traveling alone from Miami to Port-au-Prince, The narrator of Blue finds comfort at the airport, feeling free to ponder the silence that surrounds her homeland, her mother, her aunts, and her own inner thoughts. Between two places, she sees how living in poverty keeps women silent, forging their identities around practicality and resilience. From a distance, the narrator is drawn inevitably homeward toward her family and the glittering blue Caribbean Sea. Blue by Emily Prophet, translated by Tina Cover, available now from Amazon Crossing, Amazon Crossing publishes award-winning and best-selling books from around the globe, making international literature accessible to many readers for the first time. Find out more at apub.com. So my guest today is Lou Matthews, and I am so pleased to have gotten the chance to meet him and talk with him about his life and his work. His new novel, Shaky Town, is available right now from Tiger Van Books, This is Lou's third published book. The other two are Just Like James and then another one called L.A. Breakdown, which was a Los Angeles Times best book selection. Lou Matthews 
has been a literary citizen in very good standing in Los Angeles, California for a long time. Not only is he an excellent writer of fiction, he is also a journalist and a playwright and a very gifted and beloved teacher. He has taught creative writing at UCLA Extension for many years, and among his students are many writers who have gone on to notable publication success, several of whom, I should add, have guested on this program. J. Ryan Stradle, Jim Gavin, who incidentally is also the founder of Tiger Van Books. And uh, Dana Johnson is another one, and there are many more. Lou Matthews is a bit of a legendary figure in literary Los Angeles, and a lot of people whose lives he has touched are thrilled to see him getting his due as a writer with the publication and acclaim for this new novel, Shaky Town, which is among the better books about Los Angeles that I've read. Lou is a native of these parts. He knows this city as well as a person can know it, I think. And in Shaky Town, he is painting a panoramic portrait of working-class Los Angeles, the Los Angeles of the shadows, the Los Angeles that lives underground, the people and the neighborhoods and the stories that do not often make it into the movies and that are not typically part of how Los Angeles is conceived of in the imagination or presented in the popular culture. But I think that the Los Angeles that Lou Matthews knows is closer to the lived reality of Los Angeles for most people who live here. This is a wonderful book that somehow manages to understand quite a lot about a city that is famously difficult to understand. And it was just a lot of fun talking with Lou. He's great in conversation. I, I think you can tell that he's a teacher uh, within like two minutes of, of hearing him. And I hope you enjoy the talk as much as I did. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Lou Matthews. And his new novel, One More Time, is called Shaky Town. Los Angeles is a city of a thousand villages. And people don't understand that, particularly if they are parachuting in to do their analysis. Uh, what I say is like the best way to approach Los Angeles if you're from the outside is be here for two weeks or be here for 20 years. Anything in between, you can be lost. But, but the idea of a thousand villages is absolutely true. The places I grew up in, Toonerville, Frogtown, Avenues, were very, very distinct and separate places, all with their own society, all with their own culture. And you find this, if you get into East L.A., you have hundreds of neighborhoods, and they are neighborhoods, and they're, you, you, you are, are bound by that. You're bound by place in an interesting way. But, yeah, it's, it's, if you grow up here, it's a very different feel. And because we're an incredibly mobile society, there's a lot of sort of cross-pollination. As a kid, when I was still being a street racer, it was really common for us to drive two to 300 miles in a night, crossing all sorts of, of, of regions and boundaries. You learned. I mean, I was racing in Watts and Compton, and they were coming up here. There was a lot of cross-pollination. You know, you sort of know what Downey is and then you go there and you learn, you know, that there's this, there's there's a whole lot going on there that you never suspected. Hmm. So you were a street racer. 
Yeah, uh, first novel, L.A. Breakdown, is about that. And uh, when somebody asked me, you know, how do you know so much about all this bad stuff, street racing and, and a lot of stuff in, in, in uh, um, Shaky Town? And I always go back. Carolyn Shute had a great explanation. She did a, a book, the Beans of the Beans of Egypt, Maine, which is among other things about lumberjacks on welfare, a lot of strange Christian weirdness, a lot of weird sex. And Carolyn was asked, "How do you know about all this stuff?" And she said, "She said, describes this. She says this is a book that was involuntarily researched, <laughs> and that's 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 the, the line I've been using ever since. So yeah, I was a street racer for about." two years and made my living on the street, not racing myself so much, but betting. Um, I had a mentor, um, that's uh, a guy named, we'll call him Booty, who taught me how to bet on the street. We were the only two guys you would find in a crowd at a street race who had stopwatches in our pockets. Because once you figured out what the actual speeds were, what, how fast that car actually was, you could figure out how to do that bet. And, and so my own car was fairly fast for the time, but, uh, but most of my money was making, make, doing side bets on the street. Wow. And where, where are you from? You're from South Glendale originally? South Glendale. And, and where I really grew up was a place called Toonerville, which is, uh, if you know where the LA River is, this is, they call it Atwater Village now. But Toonerville is from Chevy Chase to Los Feliz Boulevard, and it's bounded by the L.A. River on the west and uh, San Fernando Road on the east. And that was basically where I grew up, where all the guys I ran with. I didn't date an Anglo girl till I was out of high school, so that was just who I ran with. And it, it's a, it was a very different culture in those days, it's hard to imagine now, but the divisions were economic. Glendale was very much in the north, you know, sort of a really white conservative Republican city. In fact, it's fairly famous as one of the sundown towns, you know, out of town by sundown. And the first um, civil rights suits, one of the major ones was against the city of Glendale for getting a postal employee out of town by sundown, run out by cops. But South Glendale was a very different proposition. That's where poor people, the brown people lived. And and my mom was a Catholic school teacher raising five boys on a parochial teacher's salary. So so, you know, that's where I lived and that's who I ran with. And that sort of formed my view of, of uh of the country. But I was I was always a working class kid. So And was your dad out of the picture? Dad was out of the picture. He was actually, he was from the Italian canton of Switzerland. He was from Lugano. He was a pasteurization specialist who came to this country around 1943 and worked for Jessup's Dairy as a pasteurization specialist. Met my mom, who was widowed at the time. Her first husband, and he's actually Matthews. My father's name was Mueller, Ernesto Mueller. And, and, um, my mother never really got over her first husband. He was a bomber pilot in World War II, flew into a cloud over Sicily, never came out, and she never got over it. I remember as a kid, all writers are snoops. I mean, basically, if I have any writers coming to the house, the first thing I do is hide anything that might be embarrassing in the bathroom and, and you know, <laughs> put away put away all the things that you care about. 
Um, but writers are natural snoops. And I can remember reading her diary when I was about 14. And she was writing to her first husband, my beloved Ernest. And it was three years after he's, he died and a year after she'd been you know, engaged to my father. So it was it was not a loveless marriage because, you know, obviously four kids, um, but uh, it was not a happy marriage. And uh, as a good Catholic mom, she would never get divorced. But he finally left, fled back to Switzerland, just left his Volkswagen at the airport, flew out, and we never saw him again. That was when I was seven, and he died when I was about 10. So uh, although people tell me, explain to me, one of my old teachers, James B. Hall, used to talk about the advantage, if you're a young man, of having your father die at or when you enter puberty. And the examples he gave were F. Scott Fitzgerald, Hemingway, I'm trying to think. There was like three or four others. And Hemingway actually got extra points because his father killed himself. <laughs> but uh, um, anyway, so so I was Louis Mueller until I was in about third grade. And then my mom changed our name back to Matthews. And without any uh, public record, as far as I can tell, which you could do back then. You just and then one of the it. nice things about California is that you can change your name anytime you want. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's in the book, right? Am I, am I, yeah. yeah, that's in yeah. the book. And so is the, 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 um, the loss of uh, like this woman's husband in the cloud over Sicily. That's an echo of personal experience. And uh, how did your father die? You said he died when you were 10. Yeah, he had a massive heart attack which is, is um, he was a big butter and cheese guy, which uh, you would expect from a pasteurization specialist. Right. And um, so it's something I've been concerned with for a long time. But um, so far, I've outlived both my parents, which is, you know, probably not a good thing. But uh, well, I don't know. It's, it's good for me. It's, uh, it's yeah. such a crapshoot, I feel like, when it comes to like longevity. Like, there are certain things you can do that I suppose improve your odds. But really, it seems to me like... There's a little bit of that, and mostly it's just the luck of the draw, right? It's genetic. And in my family, um, there's a lot of people who live well into their 90s. And um, there's a fairly famous family in Sicily that is notorious because they eat everything they want. They smoke. They drink. They're incredibly sloppy people, and they live almost all of them into their hundreds. And it's just a genetic fluke. And unfortunately, they're very ugly. So the people who would ordinarily want to marry into this family to have long-lived children are a little have a little problem. That, so. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando.
Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, you are raised, I mean, a mom raising five boys on a, on a teacher salary, Catholic school teacher salary, uh, bless her. Like that's a lot. And I'm curious to know if she is the one who imparted a love of literature to you. Like where did that come from? We were a bookish family. We didn't have a television until after John Kennedy was killed. That was 63. But the typical dining room you know, dinner table was five boys and my mother all with a book in front of us. There was no conversation. My mom probably read five mysteries a week. She would sneer at Earl Stanley Gardner but loved all the, 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 the English mystery writers, Josephine Tay and people of that ilk. But uh, I started out from – I can remember going to the tropical branch of the Glendale Public Library, which is one of the great public library systems in the country. It remains so, even though they haven't bought my book as yet. But we would go down every Saturday to the tropical branch and pick out our books. And for me, that was you know starting with history and working my way up through, through history books for, for kids and then science fiction. And from the time I was about – seven or eight until I was about 15, I probably averaged about four or five science fiction books a week. And very early, I dismissed L. Ron Hubbard, not for Scientology craziness, but because he was such a bad writer. <laughs> they used to have they used to have ace back-to-back books. And he had one that was called, Fear was, was on one side and Typewriter in the Sky was the other. Typewriter in the Sky was okay, but Fear was just terrible. So at the age of about 12, I dismissed that. But it's f- funny because every once in a while, I will still – I tend to give students stuff to read sort of the way a doctor prescribes medicine. And when I get students who live too much in their head, I will force them to read Conan the Barbarian by Robert E. Howard. And Robert E. Howard was an accountant in Texas who believed so strongly in the world that he created, the Hyborian age, that he drew maps of his world. He was completely convinced that this was a real place. Anybody who writes with this kind of conviction, you have something to learn from. And he was not a great writer. You know, all the best versions are rewritten by Theodore Sturgeon. But that kind of conviction goes a long way when you're wanting to be when you're wanting to be a writer. You know, right? Readers want to be led. They want to be want to be in the hands of somebody that knows what they're doing, and believes in what they're doing. Yeah, who like believes in their dream. Yeah, but so I, I eventually, in my dream job, I got to go to work for the public library as a page, starting by the time I was about fourteen, and that had a profound influence on me because then I started reading the good stuff, and there were two librarians in the fiction section. I'll never forget Eva Thompson and Marie Weiss who's now Marie Fish. And Marie, I think, knew I was going to be a writer before I did because she would prescribe books for me. The first book she ever gave me was a book called Up the Junction by an English writer, Nell Dunn. She's writing about hooligans in the Battersea Projects of London, which is a very, very tough area. Um, Dunn herself was an heiress from Chelsea, but she nailed it. She really recorded these people faithfully. This is a book that came out in 1963. 
It's about 129 pages. It was the first book, the only book I have read cover to cover and then opened it up and started at page one again. It affected me that strongly. It's incredibly condensed. It is you know, a, a monument to economy. I actually read Nell Dunn before I read Hemingway. And when I read Hemingway, I understood what Dunn had learned, but she'd taken it even further. I mean, she was sketching and would have like one brushstroke would tell you everything you needed to know about this pub or you know the place where they were breaking in to go swimming. Just a wonderful book. And that was the first book that made me want to be a writer. And the second book she gave me was Fat City by Leonard Gardner. And that's a book that has stayed with me. And it's the favorite book for a whole lot of writers of my generation and even earlier. Dennis Johnson wrote the introduction for the current version of Fat City, which is a New York Review of Books. But that's a book that's never been out of print. came out in 1969, and uh, the movie was made around 72. It's Gardner's only book, which I think is is fine. Uh, in France, they accept the one book wonders, you know, very gracefully. We don't do that here, but uh, it's a remarkable book about boxers in Stockton, and I, it's always made me wonder what the hell is in the water in Stockton because here's a city of, of you know, forty thousand at that time, and it produces Leonard Gardner, and Maxine Hong Kingston. Hmm. Uh, who writes Women Warrior, and I'm thinking, what the hell are they, they, they doing to those those people up there? <laughs> but it's 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 a great book, and I still reread it about once a year. I use it in all my classes as an example of, of what can be done, certain amount of luck, but he, he was a profound influence on a whole generation. As I say, it, it's like Dennis Johnson's introduction to, to the book now is just fabulous. It's something you, you should read. But as I say it was it was it was kept alive by writers, it was kept alive by editors and remains a force today. Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, I can't help but think of that librarian and how gratifying it must have been to her to see you respond so strongly to the books that she was recommending. That's a great feeling when you match make a yeah. book with a reader like that and it really knocks them out. And then secondly, you talk about a book like Fat City that survives uh, in particular because of the love that writers and uh, mm -hmm. teachers of writing or teachers of English have for it. And it reminds me of uh, the book Stoner and a conversation that I had on this podcast with Steve Almond, who wrote an appreciation of it and, you know, kind of delves into the history of it and why it survived. I love stories like that. Like yeah. wh why certain books that don't necessarily get a very strong embrace from traditional publishing um, powers that be, but survives nevertheless because of readers and because in particular of, of really devoted readers who love literature and who teach literature. Charles Portis is another example of somebody, and he did have bestsellers, but I love all of his books. And, you know, the later books, Gringo's um, Masters of Atlantis, the Dog of the South, those are all great books. They're not as well-known as True Grit, but writers have kept him alive. I had a similar experience with my first book. That's L.A. Breakdown. As you can see, that's a scurrilous book about street racing. But the book came out from a publisher, a British publisher, Malvern, and the whole thing was pretty much a scam I won't mention the publisher's name. He's now driving a taxi back in England. 
But his whole deal was actually to come over. They had offices in in um, Manhattan Beach, and what he was really after was investors. And he was doing. It turned out we didn't realize that he was doing vanity publishing on the side for a lot of people, rich people in Palos Verdes. And my book was the only book that was serious. Uh, I was the only author he ever gave author. I shouldn't say author, writer. I've never said author in my life. Um, <laughs> Until like, now. We're breaking well, news yeah, here. No, if, if somebody <laughs> talks about a physician in my classes or an attorney, I'll say, are you married to a lawyer? Are you married to a doctor? Because that's the only people who use that phrase. But in any case, he, he, he gave me an advance. He did a bang-up job on the book. All the rest of his books were really hideous. And then a terrible thing happened for him. L.A. Times picked it as the biggest, best book of the year. And back then, this is 1999, the standard deal was that there were two book lists, the L.A. Times and the New York Times, and every library in the country would then buy a copy of any book that was on the list. That's not true anymore. But So immediately he had a hit on his hand, at which point the investors thought, oh, we're going to see something back, at which point he basically fled the country. It's exactly the plot of the producers, right? Where you know he was fine as long as he was a, an ongoing failure, but as soon as there was a, just a modicum of success, then people started looking at the books, and he was gone. So I actually had to fight. I'd never signed a contract with him, which was interesting, because he wouldn't make some changes, and I actually had to go and get an attorney to retain my rights and said the letter, and it was Jonathan Kirsch, bless his heart, who actually did this on a pro bono basis. And we were talking afterwards, and I was talking about what a disaster the whole you know, publishing experience had been. I, we never found out how many books were published. The only counting we ever had was through Library Cat, uh, which found about 6,000 copies around the world, but that's all we knew. We never got an accounting. We never knew how many print were printed. And then it went down from there, and Jonathan was saying, well, you know, every writer I know has a story that's similar to this. But what you will find that if a book's any good, and it doesn't matter how bad the distributor is, how bad the publisher is, how bad the reviews, he says if a book is any good, it will find an audience. And he's right. Um, you know, it's just like it's really hard to do it when you're outside – you know, the publishing mainstream, but it does happen. In the case of, of Shaky Town, the sales manager at Ingram read the book, which is astonishing. Usually nobody in sales ever reads a book, and then made a recommendation to her sales staff and put out a little little um, blurb for the book and basically said, what we do in independent publishing is go pan for gold, and this is one that's worth it. And that just triggered a whole lot of stuff. But yeah, it's it's hard to – when people read the book, they seem to like it. It's just hard to get people to read the book if they don't buy it. So. Sure. I hope that's true. I love to believe that that's true, that if a, if a work is of uh, high enough quality that it's going to find its way somehow. I hate to think of like masterpieces that just didn't have the support that they deserved just turning to – dust or something you know that would be a sad world 
Well, Shaky Town came very close. I mean, this is a book that was actually finished 12 years ago. And the present incarnation is quite different than the 2012 version. We cut nearly 100 pages. But this is the only reason this book is out there is Jim Gavin. And Jim was my student at UCLA and then part of my home group. And then he went off to Stanford with a Stegner Fellowship. And things unfolded after that. His first story in The New Yorker, Costello, was a major success. And then his book, Middlemen, was a critical success. And since then, he's gone on to create sort of a cult, revered um, television series, Lodge 49. And basically, Jim's the reason that this book got published at all. He decided to start his own publishing company, uh, hooked up with Colleen Dunbates, who ran Prospect Park Books. And um, she eventually sold out to Turner Publishing, which is in Nashville. But Jim is, is the one who got it done. And, um, you know, but it could very easily have just, you know, not been published at all. But Jim felt an obligation. He knew the book and loved it and decided it should be out there. And he got it done. He said he wanted to make something beautiful. And the book is that. It, uh, um, if you see the cover, it's, the cover itself, will, will actually in South Africa... In Australia, nobody talks about the writer. They talk about the the, uh, the artist, Steve Powers, who is also known as Espo. And um, when you looked at this cover, the whole process of getting the cover done was unbelievable. It took about two months because, first of all, Steve's a graffiti artist from Philly, fairly famous there and more famous around the world. And First, he read the book, which is also unheard of for an artist, cover artist. And then we talked about it, and then he started asking about the place. And when we got to, I started talking about the area and the primary landmarks. And one of the biggest landmarks was Van de Kamp's Drive-In, uh, which is probably the prime example of a modern a- architecture from the 40s and 50s uh, in California. When he saw the windmill, um, that was it. That was it. You know, but it's actually not specifically the way that Steve designed it because he says this is supposed to be looking at neon on a very dark night through the windshield of a car. So if you take a look at the cut jacket, dust jacket, and I realize this is this is sort of wasted space when you're doing a, an audio cast. But if you look at the dust jacket, you should put on a pair of dark glasses and then you'll see what it really is supposed to look like. But um, anyway, Jim and, and, and Steve... Um, Working with them was a great, great experience. Wow. And, you know, we were talking, I think, before we came or before we got, you know, started with the interview proper. And I was saying that uh, so many of your past students or a good handful of them have appeared on this show, have gone on to great success. Like Jim Gavin, as you mentioned, I talked with him uh, years ago when Middlemen came out. I've talked with Dana Johnson, Jay Ryan Stradle and I are buddies. I'm trying to think of who else it would be. Amy Bender's been on the show, you know, so it's wild to think of how many like lives, uh, like writer's lives have intersected with you as the, the sort of, uh, what's the word, the center or the fulcrum. And it's, it's weird because, um, I avoided teaching as long as I could, could I come from a teaching family? My, my grandmother taught at 
was what was then called the normal school in Los Angeles, which became UCLA. My mother was a parochial school teacher for almost 40 years. My daughter is a full professor at Trinity University. She's an archaeologist and anthropologist. She knew growing up one thing. She didn't want to do anything speculative. She didn't want to do anything in the arts. And, you know, although being an archaeologist is a crapshoot as well. And I didn't want to teach. I mean, when I got to Santa Cruz, I went to UC Santa Cruz, graduated there in 73, and I was working as a mechanic. It's unimaginable now, but I got married when I was 19. My daughter was born when I was 21, and my wife never worked. I worked three jobs while going working my way through school. And you could do that then. You could actually make a living pay the rent. Kids today can't. You know, if I was coming along now, I'd be living in my car. And by the, I was a thoroughly confirmed, you know, working class guy. And by the time I graduated, you know, it was very odd. I had, I was working at the garage gas station in, in Seacliff Beach, but I also had a an, uh, an, uh, an office at the university. I was editing a magazine called Quarry West that was started by Ray Carver in the uh, early 70s. And that was the kind of thing you could do in places like Santa Cruz. But when I actually graduated, three of my teachers had been Stegner fellows, Jim Houston, Mason Smith, and Paige Stegner, who was Wallace Stegner's son. And at one point, Individually, they all sort of approached me and said, you know, there's this thing over in Palo Alto, Stegner Fellowship. Um, you know, you think you'd be interested in that? And I said, ah, nah. It's like, you know, writers write, man. They don't go to school, <laughs> which was so profoundly stupid in retrospect. But I, I actually avoided teaching, and, and I just thought, you know, I just want to write. I want to work. And the only thing that got me started I had a good friend, Ralph Angel. I met him in, in 75 at Squaw Valley Writers Conference. And uh, Ralph was a pretty great poet who ended up teaching at University of Redlands. And he suffered greatly at my hands because I would tell him shit like, um, you know, those who can do, those who can't teach, right. those who can't teach, teach poetry. <laughs> and, you know, just would take every opportunity to explain the difference between real writers and teachers. And Ralph finally had his revenge. This would have been 1981, I believe. And he called me up. No, excuse me. It would have been, it would have been about 85 because I had just, um, uh, finally worked my way out from under the, the, the garage. I was making a living as a freelance writer. And he said, you got to bail me out. And I said, what happened? He says, Les Wolf overdosed and is in a coma in Cleveland. I'm thinking, what? Les Wolf was a pretty well-known poet at the time and not well-known outside of his circle at Irvine. But he was the son of a very rich guy in Cleveland who was Nixon's ambassador to Great Britain at one point. And Les did everything he could to separate himself from his father and tried to figure out what would piss him off the most. First he became a poet, then he became a junkie, etc., Anyway, Les ends up in an iron lung in Cleveland, and as Ralph tells me, you got to bail me out. He was supposed to teach this class. i got to find somebody on a two-weeks notice, and that was how I started teaching. So I ended up teaching at Redlands, University of Redlands for about three years, and the one thing I learned was that I really didn't want to teach undergraduates because 
writing is one of the few professions in which age and experience is a virtue. And virtually every other field, youth is a virtue. Um, but these guys had nothing, nothing much to write about. And I used to force them. The one thing that struck me how bad their dialogue was because everybody sounded alike. I used to actually make them go ride a city bus for two hours and shut up and just listen and come back and tell me what they heard. And you know, they'd come back, God, you couldn't believe what this guy said on the bus to this woman. You know, it was the first time they'd ever listened in their life. But in any case, I decided by the end of that that I really didn't want to teach undergraduates. And uh, then in 1988, one of my good friends, Randy Michael Sr., who was my editor at the LA Reader, called me up and said, I got this class I'm supposed to do at UCLA. It's called Writing from the Right Side of the Brain. But I think I'm going to go back to my wife in Seattle instead. He says, you want to do that? So I said, what? So I went in and talked to Linda Venus, who was the head of the program, and agreed to teach this because I'd be teaching grown-ups. And the idea of the course, writing from the right side of the, of the brain, to this day, I, I think, is that your right or my right? You know, it was just – it came out of drawing from the right side of the brain. But it, for writers, it's completely bogus. So I dismissed that in about the first half hour of class and then taught my regular you know, introductory course in, in fiction writing. And that was 1989, and I was hooked because the students you saw in those classes were just amazing. And the very first class, one of my star students was a guy named Tom Kerwin. Tom Kerwin is the probably, I think, now the most senior reporter at the L.A. Times. At this point, he was selling ads for the business section. And the class gave him the courage to apply the skills in writing fiction to what he was doing on journalism. And he's since been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize three times. But that's an example of the kind of people you meet in these classes. These are grown-ups. These are people in, in their 30s, their 40s, who are there for one reason. You know, it's three hours a week they carve out for something they love. It's not like being on, on you know, a, a standard campus teaching undergraduates because they think it's, they're there because they think it's going to be a Mickey Mouse course. And, you know, it's just it, the people you see in those classes are, are, are profoundly different. They're, as I say, the first thing is they're there because they want to be. I usually try to get through a quarter without ever finding out what anybody does for a living and most of the time succeed because it's just it's not – it's not part of the program. And also, once you find out that somebody's a lawyer, you know, it's probably going to skew your, 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 your reading on their, on their work. So. so what about – I'm curious to know about your approach to teaching uh, fiction writing because, you know, you will hear it said sometimes like, well, this isn't something that can be taught. A person's just got to do it on their own. They've got to trial and error, do the work, read and write, and that's the only way to learn. And I think – I think like it both can be true, you know? I feel like a person has to do the work. There are no shortcuts. Yeah. But I also feel like somebody like you, who is a gifted teacher of the craft, can help as an accelerant and as a sounding board. I mean, what is your approach and how has it evolved over the years? Um, I agree with both those points. In other words, writing can't be taught, but it can be taught. I agree with Flannery O'Connor. And and um, I used to start every one of my classes using – 
essentially the Bible, two essays she wrote called Writing Short Stories and The Nature and Aim of Fiction, and then we read A Good Man is Hard to Find, which remains probably the best teaching tool I know. I've been teaching it for, for 30 years, and we'll find something new every once in a while. But what she says is that... Uh, um, at one point, she was asked by a reporter at Life magazine that, who was worried that all these new schools that were designed to develop writers, particularly the workshop at Iowa, were somehow hindering the natural evolution of writing. And, and she, they asked Flannery O'Connor, do you think that these, these discouraged too many writers? And Flannery O'Connor said, not enough. She was a hard ass as far as, as her approach. And she thought you either have the talent or you don't. And she thought from her experience at University of Iowa that you could learn certain aspects of craft. But as far as the writing itself, you either had it or you didn't. She was in an ongoing, lifelong war with Iowa, which wished, wished to take credit for everything she ever did. And she knew that wasn't the case. But what she does talk about is what a good editor, editor can do. There are sort of two ways you progress. One is that you cease to place yourself in the embarrassing positions you used to place yourself in as a beginning writer. When you start out getting somebody out of bed in the morning and on their way to work will take you three pages. You know, Joe got up, he looked in the mirror, he shaved, he had his coffee, you know, three pages. At a certain point after you get bored enough with that, you're going to get to the point where you can start out by Joe rolled over and looked at the clock. Oh, shit. In the car, rushing him to work, you know, and that does it. You know, you learn after a while to avoid the mistakes you used to make. And – but there, there are certain things that, that happen as you develop. It is repetition. I don't care whether it's brain surgery or a mechanic working on my car. I want somebody who's done it a thousand times. You know, I don't want a surgeon who opens up my skull, brain surgeon who opens up my skull and goes, hey, I've never seen that before. <laughs> you know, I want somebody who's, you know, done it so often. He goes, oh, yeah. Uh, and it's the same thing with writing. And that's strictly by repetition. I sometimes will, will sort of shock my students by explaining that you don't rule out any kind of writing at all. Before I moved to Santa Cruz, I actually made a pretty good living working as a stringer for the Glendale News Press as a sports reporter. And I was editing the student newspaper. And the cash cow for me, I was the corporate editor. The, I was the corporate um, editor of Bob's Big Boy Family News, which was Bob's Big Boy. It was my preeminent hamburger chain at the time. Um, and the, the the Big Mac is modeled on, on the Big Boy. Um, and... Once I learned to give them back their idea of dignity, um, you know, all awards were prestigious. If you could get the term prestigious in about three times on a page, you're, you're home free. But I learned a lot in the process. And the other thing, both with that job and with journalism, which I am a strong advocate for, you are forced to deal with people you would ordinarily have no business with, and that expands your horizon. One of the things that I do despair of is the growth of MFA culture in which you are surrounded by like souls and you see what I call the graduate school gloss. 
beautiful sentences that don't lead any place particularly. But um, I follow basically what O'Connor teaches in writing short stories, which is the best essay ever written on the subject. And one of the things she stresses is the idea of showing versus telling, using all the senses, and um, thinking in terms of scene. And those are sort of the three ground rules. And once you, you know, inhale that um, and get used to it, your writing becomes readable. One of the things, I mean, you, you follow current fashion. I mean, it's, we go through cycles. I can remember when Ray Carver was the preeminent voice and everybody was trying to do what they called minimalism. Ray wasn't a minimalist. He was sui generis. But you would see a whole lot of bad trailer park stories that were sort of bad imitations. And then we went through the incest stories and then the alcohol stories. Currently, we're going through a first-person present tense monologue wave in which nobody ever leaves their head and actually you know, enters into the real world. But that's starting to fade as well. But it's, it's – a lot of it too is as an editor – I believe that anything could be said as long as the intent is to improve the story. In other words, I, one of the first things I have to tell people when they take my class is that, that you know, it's been explained to me that I have far more maternal instincts than I, any heterosexual man should possess. But that doesn't preclude me from telling you when this is a bunch of crap. I, I'm startled at how many people come into my classes without ever of having, having – any serious criticism or any any you know they, they've never been told that this is not good that you know they will be told in kindly ways that that you know this can be improved but there's a lot of therapy that goes on and that's not how people progress um, the only way you can progress is 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 by being told straight probably the editing i do is uh, the line by line work i do is probably more valuable than the classroom lectures. But uh, somebody asked me last year, they say, I'm, I'm 75 now, and they said, well, how much longer you plan to teach? And I said, well, as long as I keep listening. And that sort of tells you when you're, you're done. Fitzgerald used to say that uh, the deepest human need is to feel useful. And uh, as long as you're feeling useful, you're, you're not going to get that anyplace else. Mm. I'm curious to know, with regard to what you said about Flannery O'Connor uh, and that oft, you know, oft quoted remark of hers, you know, that there there need to be fewer writers or whatever, uh, and also coupling that with what you were talking about with regard to candor and criticism and giving straight feedback to students. Have you ever had students sign up for your course, come in, submit something? And do you ever say, you know what, I don't think this is for you. Like you might want to try something else. Do you ever get that blunt with people? No, no, because one of the things I've learned over the years is I will sometimes not take the most qualified students. In other words, if I see somebody who's been workshopping the same story for three years and there's this gloss, the graduate, say the graduate school gloss, um, I'm more interested in a kid who's flawed, but there's something there. I mean, there's never I, – I, I only work with manuscript submittals, so I see their work before they're in my classroom. And there are a lot of times I'll look at someone and, and take a chance because 
there's a glimmer of hope there. There's a good line. There's one or two good lines. And a lot of times they simply haven't had good teaching. They haven't had a good good class to shape them. And what keeps me going year after year are the breakthroughs. And people who sort of flounder and fumble and then it clicks. And it happens at least once a quarter for me. In this class that I just finished last night was my last class at UCLA for the quarter. And there were two people, three people in that class that just had breakthroughs. And that's wonderful to watch. But no, I've had occasional people who cry the first time that they get that kind of criticism. But um, part of the process. Part what, of the process. When you say breakthrough, uh, obviously you're referring to a creative breakthrough. Is it possible to drill down into that a little bit more? Can you describe like, with more specificity what a breakthrough might look like for a student? It's when they find their voice. One of the things I pride myself on is that nobody ever comes out of a class writing like I do. In fact, most of the time they don't know what I, how I write, what I write. And it's developing their own distinct voice. Beginning writers pretty much sound the same. And over the course of the learning process, they gradually shape their own voice. And it's what they hit when they hit that that right note. The longer I read, the longer I write, the more important rhythm is to me. In other words, the last thing I'll do when I finish the story is read it aloud. And you hear things that, that you don't see. And it's you see that with with young writers where they gradually get to the point where they become distinct and they're all over the place. And, you know, but there is there is a level of, of you know, and, and, and it's mostly it's by repetition. It's just, you know, when they hear the same thing from me, there's a student I had this quarter and she's a very skilled writer, but she has a repetitive tick, which is she will give you what I call a multiple choice exam where, you know, she'll describe something as the vase was euchre with diamond flashes and a radiant lid and sparkled in other words like where she's giving you three options of describing this vase instead of one and it's as though you're saying well the reader has to make the choice makes the call i can't and one of the things that that flannery o'connor talks about a lot is making judgments making the judgment call that you know no you choose one and you stay with that the operative word in short story is short and this is a woman who's writing at a novelist's pace, which you can't do in a short story. And gradually over the course of the quarter, I've watched it, you know, watched what you can track the learning experience. Hmm. Your stories now are about first stories were 40 pages. Now she's in her 20s. And that's that's the, the honing process. I found in my own experience as a writer that a lot of times and, and also as a reader or as a teacher or as an editor that a lot of times a person will strenuously avoid the thing that they should be writing about <laughs> because it's too hard or too painful or it's so, it's so obvious. I think oftentimes to a third party, like a teacher or somebody who's picking it up, but it's about finding voice. It's about, um, learning how, you know, learning from one's mistakes and all that repetition. And then I think when somebody clicks into place, it's when they start telling their own 
stories. They start telling the stories yeah. that they deeply feel and that yeah. they often try to avoid it. Is that, does that square with your experience? Yeah, that's, yeah it is. But there, there's, there's another category too. There's stories that depend on somebody dying. I have a good friend, Dennis Palumbo. Dennis is a really interesting guy. He's kind of the therapist to the stars, but these are writing stars. And he started out at the age of 25. He was the lead writer on Welcome Back, Cotter. By the time he was 27, he'd published a couple novels and then did the script for a fairly wonderful food movie called My Favorite Year, which had Peter O'Toole. Um, it was Richard Benjamin was the director, and Mel Brooks was the producer. And um, at the end, I think Dennis was about 29 now, and he'd had all this incredible success. And he realized that he was spending more on therapy than he had made. And mostly he blames Mel Brooks for that. So instead, he went to Pepperdine, got his degree in therapy, and became the go-to therapist for writers in, in the television business. And periodically, we would have lunches and, and uh, share things. And I, I remember this was sort of the, the uh, second year of The Sopranos, which I just loved. And we were talking about that. Dennis would never reveal his clients. But we were just talking generally, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying, you know, where does The Sopranos come from? How did this guy named David Chase write about Goombas in New Jersey? And Dennis says, well, try Cesare. I said, what? He said, okay, okay, I get that. How does a guy named Janice Cheverry, you know, he's written The Rockford Files. He's written a lot of good television, but it's all been television. It's all been entertainment. How does he go from that to The Sopranos? And this was the years, the early years were all about the horrible mother, about Livia. And Dennis said, well, his mother died. <laughs> okay. And you find that a lot with writers generally, you know, that there's a story that they have that they can't tell yet. They think because they're waiting for somebody to die so they won't recognize themselves. And I have to explain to them that they will never recognize themselves particularly if they're the villain, they will never see themselves. So it's, it's immensely freeing. And, and people tend to start out two ways. They either avoid autobiography, and this is particularly true with people who start out writing mysteries and science fiction, and eventually get to their core. And then there's the other way, which is you start out writing entirely autobiographical work, and then you run out of the obligatory stories, first love, first betrayal, parental problems and you have to move beyond your own experience and that's when the real work begins you know everybody's got four or five built-in stories but at a certain point you have to you have to move on beyond your own experience one of the great lessons i had when i was an undergraduate there was a writer named peter beagle and Peter Beagle is not as well known now, but at one point he was fairly famous. His first book was called A Fine and Private Place. And it was the first actual bit of magical realism before magical realism was invented. It was all about people who were living in a cemetery in the Bronx. You had a talking raven um, and a young kid. And it was an insane and very funny book. 
he wrote it when he was 19. He was living with a family, the Untermeyers, which were a very literary family. Everybody was writing a book, and he figured he had to. So he wrote this wonderful book. His next book took him about seven years, he said, because he went to Stanford. And before he learned how hard it was to write, he wrote just fine. But once he went to Stanford and they told him how hard it was to write, his next book took seven years, which was basically about a scooter trip. And then his third book was The Last Unicorn, which is a book that most people in that era knew. Peter came and, and gave a reading at my class in Santa Cruz. He was a friend of Jim Houston's from from Stanford. And he talked about moving beyond autobiography. At the time, he was working on a novel. He was a very slow writer. He was working on a novel that became The Folk of the Air, uh, which was published about eight years later. But he talked about his working method, which was almost always you start with a character that is based on someone you know, based on someone from life. In his case, it was a friend he had in the very tiny community he lived in, in Coralitos, California, next to Watsonville. And it was a Filipino pharmacist. And it was just a character, a man that that Peter knew and had loved. And to make him fit the book, Peter said you had to make the character your own. So he made this Filipino pharmacist. First, he made him a woman. That wasn't enough. So he made her a doctor. And finally, he moved her from Watsonville to Berkeley, at which point you had all the essential features uh, of this Filipino pharmacist, but it was now in Peter's character. And that freed him to the point that he could write the book. He says, what you will, you, you know, you, you have to make enough changes. So he called it the necessary lie. He says, you have to make enough changes to make the characters yours. Um, because otherwise you're bound by life. You're bound by the baggage of autobiography. Um, the one thing I will tell my students is that you could almost always tell and check yourself on this in your own writing. Um, when we write a character that's based on someone from life, you will obviously change the name. You will almost never change the number of syllables in the name because the name has to sound right to us. It has to ring true in the ear. Um, so, uh, you know, and but but check yourself in your own writing. And see how often that's that's been true. I was just dialing it up as you were talking, and I was like, "Yep, damn it, he's right." <laughs> yeah, no, it has to sound right to us in our heads. Sure. You know, you know, you can't go from Mankiewicz to Smith. Right. You know, it's just not going to work. So okay, uh, and before I forget, uh, I want to get to Shaky Town and and your own writing. You know, uh, in addition to all the wonderful teaching that you've done. But you mentioned Raymond Carver a couple times, in particular with respect to the literary journal that you were editing, right, at Santa Cruz? Yeah. Did you cross paths with him in your – Ray was, was my teacher, and you have to understand this is in Ray's bad old days. From 71 to 73, 71 he taught at UC Santa Cruz, 72 he taught at UC Santa Barbara, 73 he taught at University of Iowa. He didn't finish the year at any one of those places um, <laughs> because he was drinking so badly. The class I took with him was an omnibus class, poetry, nonfiction, and fiction. He encouraged everybody to write poetry because it was short. He couldn't remember anybody's name. He wasn't usually obviously lit, but he was not completely – Gross. Uh, at the same time, he was writing all this great stuff. 
And the idea that somehow he could manage to do both was just amazing to me. There's a poem you should look at called An Evening with Charles Bukowski. And to my mind, it's the best Bukowski poem ever written, but it was written by Raymond Carver. And it's about an evening that was spent in Santa Cruz. As the youngest, most junior faculty on campus, he was responsible for hosting visiting writers. And they'd elected to bring in Charles Bukowski for an evening of readings. And Bukowski, they sent him a plane ticket, which he promptly cashed in. He arrived on a Greyhound bus. Ray goes down to meet him at the bus wearing his only coat and tie. And Bukowski got off the bus insulting him, talking about these goddamn teachers, these academics. <laughs> and Ray Carver was the least academic guy you'd ever meet. But Bukowski basically insulted anybody with a university affiliation for the rest of the night, then did his reading, proceeded to get shit-faced drunk. And Ray had stayed sober the whole day. And finally, about 2 o'clock, Ray gave up and started drinking. What was able the next day or whenever he wrote it to write this incredible poem that recounts the entire evening faithfully and brilliantly. And that that kind of stunned me when I finally read it. About six years later, I got to know Ray a lot better. He, I was running the Santa Cruz Writers Program, which was a summer program, which was a really great event. I did it for about two years. And Ray was there the first year. And for the price of a dorm room and a cafeteria ticket, we had Ray Carver there for two weeks. And he would read anything anybody handed to him. I remember him walking around with a stack of manuscripts because he didn't have any place else to go. And that was kind of his first year of being sober. And he was a little, little lost. But it was, you know, it was just absolutely this incredible resource. The second year, he came through with Tess Gallagher. Tess is one of the great managers, literary managers of all time. They came through on a Monday. Ray did a reading that night, did a, taught a class Tuesday morning, tested the reverse. She did a class on Monday and a reading Tuesday. And on Wednesday, they were out of there on their way to Port Townsend to do another writer's conference. And then another five writer's conferences after that. Been, they met at University of Texas, El Paso. And in the course of the next year, Tess got them both jobs at Syracuse. And they moved there. And um, uh, things started to drop for them after that. Ray had been respected. But one of the things you find is that until you go east and they see who you are and know who you are, you're not real. I can remember, you know, I mean, if Joan Dinian had stayed in, in Sacramento, she would not have had the career she has, even if she'd written all exactly the same things. And it was the same thing with Carver. He did readings at all the Seven Sisters and all the Ivies. And after that, the real major acclaim began to fall. Hmm. Um, one of my teachers, Mason Smith, did his doctoral thesis on a writer named Hans Otto Storm. I thought it was Japanese, but it's Hans Otto. He's German, socialist writer who did bestsellers in the 30s. And he had a letter in his, his thesis about Hans Otto writing to his agent at the time, who was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, that he planned to move to New York because he said it made more sense to him to crack the gates at the hinges. And it, it is a lesson. You have to genuflect. You have to at least go there. 
Um, and if I'd been wise, I certainly would have should have moved to New York in my 20s. But, you know, that's not what you do when you're working as a mechanic and trying to trying to survive. But uh, I got my MFA at Vermont College and it was sort of a I was say I was teaching at Redlands. They wanted to offer me a tenure track job. I dated MFA. So I looked at the faculty and there was an old friend, Mark Doty. And so I called Mark. Vermont was one of the two low residency programs in the country at that point because I wasn't going to pick up and move to Iowa. So I called Mark up and I said, what's it about? And and uh, uh, Mark had been our scholarship boy at, at uh, um, UC Santa Cruz when I was doing the summer writing program. And he told me all about the program. It sounded great. And um, then he repaid the favor by getting me a scholarship. So when I came in, I actually had more publications and some of my teachers in some places and better magazines as well. But because I was from California and you're dealing with New Englanders, they just didn't get it. By the second year, though, the same thing happened, kept happening over and over. They'd read my work. They'd seen me in workshops. They sort of knew who I was. And over the course of that second year, I would have these staid New Englanders kind of coming in a little closer. And, and it was always the same refrain, which was, you know, you just don't seem like you're from California, you know, which I realized after a while was the highest praise that they could muster. Uh, but <laughs> I, I share with you, I should have moved to New York in my 20s. I was out here. I don't know. I went to graduate school out here at USC and met my wife and, you know, my life just happened out here. But I think that over the past 20 years in particular, it's become a little bit less. So it's like things seem to have fractalized and dispersed and the publishing has changed. I mean, look at you, you've got Jim Gavin out here starting this press and collaboration with Turner publishing in Nashville. And so things are, I think, democratizing a little bit, right? It's, it's, it's still locked in in New York, and, and I mean, all you have to do is ask yourself, what replaced Black Sparrow? Black Sparrow Press was a major force, and it was because they got a hold of a comet named Bukowski. And on the basis of Charles Bukowski, they were able to do books by Wanda Coleman, by Diane Wachowski, by any number of really fine writers who never would have been published. But that was a press that eventually moved east was bought by Echo Press, and it's a completely different kettle of worms now. And actually, you have no hope of ever publishing with them if you're from the West Coast. And I kept waiting for someone to replace them, and nobody ever has. Prospect Books, Spark Books, is probably as close as we've come. And Colleen eventually just got so worn out that she couldn't do it. But the other major presses out here, Angel City Press doesn't publish any fiction at all. Red Hand does mostly poetry. And there's lots of other small presses. Most of them seem to be run by Trustafarians, and they have a very sort of limited range of of you know what they're publishing. There is Counterpoint, which is up in San Francisco, but they don't seem particularly interested in. I shouldn't say that because they publish Dana Johnson. They publish a number of of good writers from from. Southern California, but they're very it's it's kind of a, a limited range. And the other California press of note, Heyday, 
has never published fiction. I have not. They have not published fiction for about ten years. Hmm. But for for and and of course they're right. I mean, you na- you make no money publishing fi- fiction. You know, unless something is attached. If there's movie rights or something else that's attached, then it's a different game. But uh, uh, but the other thing is that the press is here may be publishing good work, but it's very unlikely that an independent press, a small press here, is going to be reviewed by Kirkus or by Library Journal. We just don't have that kind of clout. And if you are assigned to something like Publishers Weekly, you're probably going to get a graduate student doing your review. And that's that's about 90% of the reviews, the ones that are not coming from major houses, are going to be reviewed by graduate students. And the results may be are, – are extremely variable. So, Yeah, and I always hate that it's anonymous. I think they should put their names on it. It's just like some like <laughs> nameless <laughs> person yeah. who writes a paragraph about your book that then follows it around wherever it goes. And it's like, well, who is this person? Who has all this – you know, but they never tell you. And yeah. I, I want to uh, shift gears a little bit and just talk about the title of your book, Shaky Town. Uh, can you talk about what this is in reference to? Okay. Um, this is due entirely to an imaginary fault. It's not really imaginary. There is a fault line that runs under Dodger Stadium, and it hasn't been active. But in my mind, um, this is the one area in Los Angeles where you still have poor people living on hills. And in my imagined version of, of Southern California history, this ideal thing happened, which was there were a whole series of earthquakes in the 20s and 30s when growth was happening all over Los Angeles, which scared off realtors, scared off you know, the high-end markets. So the only people who would live in this dangerous earthquake area were the poor, first of all, the Germans, Italians, and then Mexicans who were immigrating here. Uh, And um, because they had aftershocks through the 30s and 40s, no realtor would take the chance of selling, you know, stuff that might be destroyed in a year. So you have a community that basically grows up around risk and the poverty values stay low. And it means that you're able to stay. This is very much like what you have now in areas. Atwater Village is one where you're starting to see gentrification, where you're starting to see see Highland Park is another. Highland Park is actually shaky town adjacent, where you see families that have been there for three generations are now being pushed out just because the values are going up so well. But in other words, in my imagination, there's a sacred ground where you know, you have poor people who continue to live there um, because they can afford to and because they have a community that surrounds them and sustains them. And that's and that's Shaky Town. Yes. Yeah. And that's where the name comes from. And you were working on this book. You said it was finished in some form, at least a decade ago. It was finished about 2012. And how and long had the, you been working on it? Um, the earliest stories in that book go back to my days at Vermont College. Wow. Um, and um, it, it's hard to imagine. I tend to work on projects simultaneously. Um, while I was working on this book, I was also working on another book about a faded screenwriter, Dale Davis, um, and he's 
some of his friends say, don't you mean a failed screenwriter? He says, no, poets can fail. Screenwriters can only fade. Uh, the bar is set too low. But that's a book called Hollywoodski, which is next up. So I go back and forth. I've actually written seven books in that period, three of which now have been published. But I always had the idea. I always knew what the book was about, which was about a sense of place. My models were first Winesburg, Ohio, and then after that, Cannery Row, which is a kind of an amazing and I think underrated book. It was a lot of it's due to Steinbeck's experiences in the war. He came back haunted by death. And if you read that book and you start looking for the number of corpses that come through in that book, you're, it's staggering. There are three suicides. There are seven bodies. Hmm. Um, and uh, But it's it's a great book bound by sense of place. After that, a book that I love, The Women of Rooster Place by Gloria Naylor. And then Pat Barker's Union Street, which I think was a Booker Prize shortlist. But these are all these are all books that are linked by place. And when you do a linkage by place, something happens. Winesburg, Ohio is never described as stories. It's described as a novel. And yet it is stories. But the central narrator is actually the town. The town is the consciousness of the book. That was something that intrigued me. So I always knew I was going to write about where I grew up. And it's actually three neighborhoods, but primarily Toonerville and, and Avenues. And I always had a, an idea whole of what it would be, where it would go. And, and uh, But it took me a long, long time to finish um, because in some cases you had to wait until you were good enough to write them. In other cases, if you look at the novella, and it originally was published as a novella, the title um, novella, Shaky Town, that was a novella that took me about two years to finish. And part of that was that I thought that the priest, Brother Cyril, who was basically so disheartened by the actions of his church in protecting Petrus priests, that he basically just goes to hell in his own way. And I assumed for a long time that he had to die at his own hands, which prevented me from ever finishing the novella. And it was after, I think, two to three years when I finally realized that, no, he has to touch bottom, but he doesn't have to die. And when I realized that, that that was possible, I was able to finish it in about another month. Hmm. But uh, so they're long. I, I tend. It's a great. It's a great gift. It's a great. It, it's a great present to be able to have that kind of time to get it right. There's a book that is generally regarded as the best collection of short stories in the late 20th century, and that's Dennis's Johnson's Jesus' Son. People don't understand that that's a book that took 20 years to assemble. He was not – he's a naturally gifted short story writer, but he doesn't write that many, and they're long, few and far between. In one case, my favorite story in the book is a story called Emergency, which was originally two stories, and he could never figure out how to finish, finish one or finish the other, and he finally woke up one morning and threw the two stories together, and suddenly the story is there. But that was a nine-year program. 
for him. Hmm. I have another story that's 30 years old that I haven't figured. So I tend to work very slowly. I tend to be a perfectionist. I tend to be working on a lot of different projects at once. It's it's genuinely a gift to have the time to do that. And as I say, the earliest version of Shaky Town, it's now 240 pages. The earliest version in 2010 was closer to 340. In other words, I ended up cutting nearly 100 pages. Most of that was cutting out entire stories. But I also went through and did internal cuts beyond that. And it's really true that less is more. And and there's a kind of cohesion that wasn't there before and a kind of rhythm that I think sustains the book differently. Um, but that's a really interesting process. And to be able to do that um, is, as I say, is – you're really lucky to have that kind of time. Most of my friends don't get to do that. You know, they've got an editor in New York who is demanding a manuscript at a certain point. If they miss their 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 wire, they miss their their window. They're in trouble. I have a friend who's who's now having to wait an extra year for his book to come out because he missed his window. And I think that's a great gift. You can get it right now. But Bat City was an example I've talked about before. That was a book that I understood. It's 189 pages. And at one point, it was closer to 300. So that was sort of a model uh, for me as well. But uh, um, yeah, shaping shaping the book is, is part of the most interesting part of the process. And that was Jim and I just talking it through. I had no line editing at all. All the decisions were mine. As far as what went in, what stayed, but with Gemini, he'd always he would just say, "Well, I think this section's a little long," and if I agreed, I'd start doing my trims. But I didn't have a sentence that was changed at the direction of any editor, and that never happens. Well, you get to do exactly what it is. So, whatever is out there, you can blame me for it. <laughs> well, I think I've had uh, in recent episodes, I've remarked i think more than once that th- there can be great 500 page novels or 1000 page novels i don't think i don't think there's a ton of them but i think they do exist and i think any length of a book as long as it justifies itself is fine mm-hmm. but in general as a reader what i notice is that most 3 or 400 page books could probably stand to be cut yeah. There's a, a students in my classes will say, well, how long should a short story be? And I once had a teacher, James B. Hall, who said, oh, not, no story should ever be over 18 to 20 pages. And he was just throwing out an, an arbitrary number to force us to defend ourselves if we went over or under that, and which is a good model. But what I tell them when they say, well, how long should a short story be? I said, well, it's up to the individual short story. It's like Lincoln's answer. During the Lincoln-Douglas debates, Lincoln is 6'5", and, and Douglas is 5'2", the little general. And he was asked, how long should a legs, man's legs be? And Lincoln answered, long enough to reach the ground. <laughs> and that's the truth with, with stories. As long, I mean, the story determines the length. And one of the things that's hardest to explain to people is it's the problem of short story writing. I always tell my students, if you have a choice, declare yourself a novelist 
Because if you're a novelist and you haven't written anything for six months, you can still say, I'm working on a novel. <laughs> right. And when my wife will say, you really going to watch three football games today? I'll say, I'm listening for a bad quote from a bad sportscaster. And it hasn't happened yet. I'm researching. <laughs> it's all part of the process. That's right. <laughs> Joyce, excuse me, um, Catherine Ann Porter spent 20 years not writing Ship of Fools. But she could always say, I'm working on a novel. And she finally finished it. But if you're a short story writer and you haven't written anything on a short story for six weeks, you're blocked. Um, you're just screwed. In, in Flattery O'Connor's essay, Nature and Aim of Fiction, she talks about a friend of hers who is both a novelist and short story writer. I think she was Carolyn Gordon. And she says, what's the difference? She says, well, when I leave off from my novel and start in a short story, I feel like I'm writing, leaving a sun-drenched meadow and walking into a dark wood because short stories are such an individual problem they're all individual trials, and what you learned on the first story may not apply to the story that you're writing next. Um, and that's, you know, it's just a much harder form in that sense. So the relationship between teaching and writing, this has been written about and uh, discussed, you know, sort of ad nauseum through the years. A lot of times you'll hear a writer say like, well, the teaching gets in the way. I just want to get away from the teaching so I can write. That clearly hasn't been the case for you. You've managed to be uh, an industrious educator and also uh, a productive writer. Can you just talk about the relationship between the two? Is there ever tension that frustrates you or do you there... feel like they feed each other in a nourishing way, like in a beneficial way? They do in some sense. In other words, what I learned when I started teaching, I didn't realize I had strong opinions on the subject of writing until I was forced to expound on that. And then I realized that I had pretty fierce ideas about what good writing was and how it was done. But unless you're forced to explain yourself, it just doesn't come up. It's internal. So that's been good. This helped me shape my own work. I tend not to get a lot of fiction writing done when I'm teaching. I will do a lot of journalism. Um, I will do, you know, essays, but very, very little in the, in the way of, of fiction, unless I'm on a deadline, unless I'm, I'm editing something that's already written, you know, stories accepted and I have to bring it up to snuff. Um, for some people, they feed on it. I know a lot of teachers who basically, Use their, you know, use their classes to steal ideas. I've never been able to, to, to do that. But as a general rule, I, I don't think it's symbiotic, but the one informs the other. What you learn in your own process from writing, you can convey. You know, and these are usually hard one hard one lessons. What about what about what you get from it? Like I imagine, I mean, this has been the case for me. Is that you know, you're working on your stuff and you've got these hard-won lessons that you can impart to your students, but it also has to be inspiring to be around that energy and to be around all that, that good ambition, you know, that creative ambition yeah. and that excitement over literature. There are two things that, that apply. One is that um, Flannery O'Connor was asked one time, why do you write? And she answered, because I do it well. And 
people thought that was a little snippy, but I know exactly what she means. I mean, whether it was when I was working as a mechanic, there was a point in my life I specialized in Volkswagens when I was in college, probably rebuilt about 300 engines. But I got to the point that I could look at a set of points on a distributor on a Volkswagen. That's the key to a tune-up. You're supposed to set the point gap at 14 to 16 thousandths. What's the difference between 14 and 16 thousandths? That is the thickness of a piece of cellophane on a cigarette pack. I got to the point through repetition that I could set that by eye. You test it at a dwell meter, but you could set that 14, 16 thousandths by eye. That's repetition. But again, it's the pride of doing something well. It's the same thing in writing. It's the same thing in teaching. When you know that what you do is effective, that helps you, that sustains you. There's also a Buddhist quote which is, if you don't like the answer, change the question. If I'm stalled on my own writing, teaching sustains you. In other words, there was a study a few years back, about 20 years back, about prison teachers. When I say prison teachers, these were people who were in jail, in prison, who learned to write in prison, started publishing in prison, got out, and there's a syndrome over and over. Mostly, a lot of these guys, women, got jobs teaching high school and junior college, mostly junior college, at which point they stopped writing. And they asked them what happened. They said, well, every year I get to face, every you know new quarter, I get to face 40 fresh faces who think I'm a writer. And that's enough. That sustains you. So it's like, you know, that's the trap. Because I know a lot of teachers who do stop writing, and that is crippling. Um, but fortunately, I have been able to maintain a bit of a balance. When Jim and I were doing a another podcast a while back, the question was raised, um, what do you wish you'd known early on? And Jim said, I wish I'd known about the gaps. I wish I'd known about the times where you didn't write, you couldn't write, or you wouldn't write. And those are built in. It's just sort of you have to accept it, that you will have dry spells. When Steinbeck would finish a novel, particularly a long novel, he understood that he wasn't going to write anything for probably six months, maybe more. And what he, call, he called that period of time refilling the wells, that, that you had to let it build up again until you could draw on it. And there, there is something to that. But I know that whenever I finish a class, I'll have a week and usually get – you know, sort of mildly depressed because it's all over. Won't see those friendly faces again. And, and usually, last class, everybody's very happy. Um, and then, second week or so, I'll start thinking about what I need to work on next, and and uh, get get rolling on that. But uh, hmm. but the other experience I've had is that when I really wasn't getting the answer I wanted in fiction, I started taking up playwriting. And I had about a five-year span when I did mostly playwriting, and that was really um, sort of sort of saw me through. Uh, but that's another example of changing. If you don't like the answer, change the question. I, I think, too, some of the things that you were saying earlier about the length of time that it can take for a project to fully manifest, I think a lot about that. I, I think that it's often the case that we have an impulse to want to publish, right? We want to get our work out there. We want to get our 
name circulating or keep our career going, whatever the case may be. And these things are on their own clock. Yeah. And that can be enormously frustrating. I guess some writers have a faster clock than others. They're more prolific. They have more books in them. But as you were saying with regard to Fat City, it's like one book, yeah. right? One masterpiece and out. And that's okay. You know, it, sometimes that's what a person's creative life is about. And so I guess the question that it begs for me is like, how do you evaluate yourself on the, on those terms? And how do you know what your clock, what your clock is? I guess it's like an intuitive thing. You, you know it intuitively. I'm convinced that Flannery, Flannery Connor had lupus. She had to know. You know, but she was writing. I mean, you look at people like like. There's no explanation for Flannery O'Connor. She comes from the backwoods of Georgia, Milledgeville, and there's no explanation for why this creature suddenly lands in our midst. The comparison I always make: the great Mexican writer Juan Rufo, who comes from the backwoods of of uh, I, I believe it was um, um, our, uh, Jalisco, and rural area. And in the space of three years, writes two great books, Yano and Yamas, The Plain and Flames, a collection of short stories, and his masterpiece, Pedro Paramo, which is the basis for all magical realism. It was the book that Gabriel Garcia Marquez was so enamored of, it's only 120 pages, Marquez memorized it. And when he was very young and got drunk at parties, he would recite it in its entirety. That's how important that book was. But again, only two books. There's no explanation for Juan Rufo. He worked most of his life as a tire salesman. you know. But it's just sort of like those books are there. They remain. Um, and as far as knowing what you're going to do, in my case, I, I, I really didn't. I, as I say, I my own family, my my own particular parents. My mom died at sixty-seven. My mom died at fifty-seven. Excuse me. My mom died at sixty-seven. My dad died at fifty-seven. So I wasn't expecting this kind of run. But somehow, somebody knew it. It's not like Mickey Mantle, who once said, "If I'd known I was going to live this long, I would have took better care of myself." <laughs> <laughs> and you know, so you know, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to finish up. I have a sense of what I have yet to do, but you know, you don't know if you're going to get, if you're going to get to finish it. But I, I, I do think we have some kind of inner clock, some sense of when you got to hurry up. I also know that whenever I have any sort of death threat, if I have a, a medical issue, it's, it's sort of what, what um, Samuel Johnson once said about the benefits of, of, of hanging, the imminence of a hanging, it does provide a great concentration to the mind. Yeah, right. So whenever I get a, a bad medical diagnosis or something happens, I tend to get a lot done. Um, I do the same thing sort of on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm getting ready to go first vacation in two years. My wife and I are going to Tucson to meet with my daughter and her husband because it's equidistant between L.A. and San Antonio. Um, but as a result, for the next two days, I'm going to be on a dead run, sort of writing to everybody I've offended and getting as much done because I always assume I will die on the highway. You know, this is not like a plane flight, but, you know, that's just my M.O. Right. You know, give me give me some incentive and I'll get things done. Sure, sure. 
writers like writers are great procrastinators and 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 a false deadline is always a great thing to have for for a writer so well i mean i could keep uh asking you questions all day long i i think maybe where i would like to end is by talking about writing cross culturally which you do so wonderfully in shaky town i think that was one of the aspects of it that impressed me the most was just how knowing this book is about so many disparate uh, lives and cultural experiences. And I'm wondering if you have instruction for people listening, in particular writers who are listening, who might have some hesitation around that because they don't want to do a bad job of it. It's a, it's a scary thing to do, right? You start writing outside of your yeah. cultural box and it's like, uh-oh, what if I... What if I offend somebody or what if I yeah, make some the, sort of egregious mistake? The, the prescription now is sort of stay in your lane. and But the lane I grew up with was much more fluid. As I say, these are the people I grew up with. And I was what they called a Chicano false or a white bean because uh, that's who I ran with. But our pollination, our, 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 you know, it's sort of like it was if you lived in a poor neighborhood, that's who you ran with. And it's also – Back in the 50s, 60s, the idea that that you know it was much more fluid. In Boyle Heights, there is a, a shoe, a shirt manufacturer, Sir Guy shirts. They're just terrible shirts. They have like velvet and and buttons that look like fake pearl, and that's what we all wore. The cholo aspect. If you were a Japanese kid or a Jewish kid living in Boyle Heights in the time, that's what you wore. Because that's who you ran with. You're going to Garfield. You're going to Roosevelt, and you look at that neighborhood. That's a neighborhood that began as a Jewish neighborhood. The oldest synagogue in Los Angeles is in Boyle Heights. It later became a Japanese enclave, and you still had in the 50s and 60s. You still had some Jewish kids there. You still had some Japanese kids there, who all dressed like their cholos, which means that they're wearing sir guy shirts. They're wearing khakis that have slit cuffs. And they're wearing wearing French shiner shoes, right? And and you know that was your culture. That's where you ran. I, that was how I grew up. I didn't know anything else. Almost all my friends were. And this is so long ago that the Chicano had not been invented. Hmm. You had pocho, you had pochuco. The approved term back then was Mexican American, which we mostly didn't use. It was also an era in which most of the kids I knew didn't speak Spanish. Their parents didn't want them to learn Spanish. They didn't want them to have an accent because back then that was your through ticket to you know the American dream was not sounding like who you were. Um, so basically we had Kahlo, you know, everybody knew how to say Orle pues or you know, Chica tu madre, but it's sort of like not much beyond that. The main thing is how well is it done? Colson Whitehead gave a talk at AWP associated writing program about 2017 when the term cultural appropriation came up and he said you know i have this thing i love to make korean chicken korean fried chicken is my thing he says you know the problem when i started out was that it was terrible it was not very good at all and you know Nobody said much, but as soon as I got good, as soon as I was making really good Korean fried chicken, people would just say, this is great chicken. This is great chicken. And then I realized that what they should have been saying early on when I was making bad chicken, this is cultural appropriation. 
Okay, because it's bad chicken. It's bad. You know, it's like if you do it well, it crosses over. Zadie Smith has a long essay on the same subject, and she, she talks. Why would you rule that out? Why would I not want to write in the voice of a seventy-year-old white man? You know, why would you limit yourself in that sense? And the answer, of course, is pop. You know. Some people want to shrink the pool, but but you know you think of the great examples you know throughout history. I mean, do we really want to be without Madame Bovary? You know, but again, it was done well, um, and that seems to be the dividing line. I haven't had any any negative feedback as, as yet. It may come, but part of it is that I know so many people in the Chicano writing community and. They've known what I've been writing all along and, and seem to approve. So it's, it's also the fact that the central character, Emiliano Gomez, is based on my uncle Jesus Renteria, who died around 1986 and was a very, very funny man, particularly when he was drinking. But this is a guy who was a bracero from Zacatecas, tiny town called San, Rancho San Bernardo, who moved up to Fillmore, California, where my family's from met and married my Aunt Dorothy and eventually uh, became part of the Mexican-American community in Santa Paula. But he was sort of the model. There were also a lot of fathers and uncles of my friends that are part of that composite. But, you know, when you're working, from, you know, when you're working from your family, it's a little hard to, to, to say that you can't write about that because that's who you are. That's where you're from. Yeah, it's authentic to you. And I think, you know, the question is like when you're when you're Colson Whitehead and you're making Korean fried chicken, you, you know, I don't think he has Korean family. You know, he's to write something that's outside of your uh lane as you say and to do it well. The question is like how how do you do it well? And I guess it's just what? You got to do the research. You got to draft yeah, and redraft. The I mean, the Chicano characters that I write about are people I know. Um, in the case of the Korean grocer who you meet in, in Garlic Eater, it was actually a man I knew very well. And some of the events, what happened to him, what happened to his family, I, I lived through. This is a liquor store that's been closed now for 11 years. Um, and I knew the man fairly well, but the rest of that was a matter of respect and a lot of research. And and also running it by some friends, some some students who were Korean, and making sure that I was being respectful and I was getting it right. Um, I, I I do feel that obligation that you know you can tread on toes that you don't even know are there, and you got to make sure that 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 you're, you're you have not crossed a line that shouldn't be crossed. But, uh, Okay, one more question, just because I have you here and you've mentioned his name, uh, and he's like a quintessential Los Angeles literary figure, is Bukowski. Did you ever cross paths with him in person? I did not, and part of the problem was that I, I loved Post Office, which is, I think, his best book and his most honest book. I was not a huge fan of the poetry, which some of it I liked, but it tended to be sentimental tended to be a little sloppy and he was an egomaniac and 
I sort of liked the idea that he was around, but I didn't really want to be somebody that knew. I didn't want to know the guy. You know, I, I mean, I liked the guy that I liked the idea that he was out there. And I liked his column in the L.A. Free Press, Notes of a Dirty Old Man. But it was – I guess you know, I'm a snob when it comes to, to, to writing, and, and a level of craft is something that, that is always part of the, the picture for me. And when I said earlier that the best Bukowski poem ever written was written by Raymond Carver, I really do believe that. On the other hand, he put us on the map. And he made Black Sparrow possible and is owed a large debt for that. So. Yeah, well, I mean, that's like a – it's funny that you draw this line between Carver and Bukowski because both of those writers, uh, Carver with Gordon Lish and uh, Bukowski with – and I'm blanking on the guy's name at Black Sparrow. Was it John Martin? John, it? yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like – Bukowski was writing drunk, or at least was drinking while he was writing. He would fire off like 25 pages of a novel in a night or whatever and wake up in the morning and pick him up off the floor and then give him to John Martin. I think I've read stuff like this. And Martin had a big hand in honing that stuff, as did Lish, I think, with Carver's work. So, you know, I you, you say that Bukowski reads sloppy. Like, I don't know how you could be drinking like a jug of wine and sitting at your keyboard and banging out 25 pages in a session and not be a little yeah. sloppy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't know that Martin was editing him that much. I'd never, I'd never heard that. Um, and in the case of Lish, absolutely. I mean, and Carver used to talk about, one of the things he talked about was having luck. And in Ray's case, Ray did very well that he could have ended up as an alcoholic junior college teacher who got fired probably in his 40s except he was in Palo Alto at the same time as Gordon Lish. Ray was working for an educational publisher, and Lish was teaching at Menlo College, which is a college designed for very rich kids. Um, and he was running a magazine called Genesis West, and they got to be drinking buddies. And if Lish had not gone back east when he did, he went to the Coordinating Council of Literary Magazines, which was an early organization for lit mags, and gave a fiery speech there. And in the audience was Arnold Gingrich, who was the publisher of Esquire. And Gingrich at that point was really kind of fed up with his editor, fiction editor, Rust Hills, and looking for somebody new. And he was so smitten with Lish that he hired him on the spot. If he, if Lish hadn't gone east for that conference, if Gingrich hadn't been in the audience, Ray Carver would not have been possible. Wow. In other words, there's a series of a, – a chain of events there that is so profound. So you know, Ray knew how lucky he was. But you also have to understand it was a symbiotic relationship with Lish that eventually got very scary. If you want to know the story of that relationship – Read a story of Ray's called So Much Water, So Close to Home. The original version was published in a Capra book called uh, Furious Seasons. And in that collection, that was around 1970, I think I'd have to get it out of my shelf. That, that issue was about, it was about a 35-page story. The story So Much Water, close, So Close to Home, as edited by Lish, 
that appeared in what we talk about when we talk about love, which was Carver's real breakthrough short story collection, was about 10 pages. And then you read the version that Ray wanted, which is the last version and where I'm calling from. The story is back up to 35, closer to 37 pages. In other words, what Lish did in that particular story is fairly obscene. But Lish was completely in touch with the American public at that point, knew about the shrinking attention span. That's the first book that really cracked it. But it was also the last time that Lish was Carver's editor. Hmm. And the reports that I had at the time, I don't know whether they're true or not, was that Carver at one point wanted to withdraw the book because he was so horrified with what Lish had done. And, of course, it turns out that Lish was right. But if you look at what Carver wrote after that, that's when he gets into his Chekhovian phase. And he's writing great stories like Cathedral, which are longer, fuller, rounder. It's a just – it, it seems to be, see a sea change, and it's not. It's just that these are stories that are no longer being edited by Lish. Hmm. But that's a war that continues. Lish is still trying to take credit. Well, I have so enjoyed this conversation, Lou. I appreciate you taking the time. I congratulate you on this book. It's a wonderful portrait, tapestry, mosaic, uh, prismatic telling of life in Los Angeles and maybe life on the margins in Los Angeles. And I know, having spent like a decade on a book, I know how that goes. And to see it through and to have it be published in such fine form is wonderful. It's, it's, a, it's always a great story to hear when somebody has this ride because there are so many people out there, I think, who are working on books and struggling. And it's nice to know when there's a happy ending. <laughs> Thank you, Brad. The other way to look at it is like, what else was I going to do? Right, right. You know, the th <laughs> thing people ask me is like, how do you know you're a writer? It's when you don't have a choice. You know, it's 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 when you're going to write, when you're going to do it, whether anybody's waiting for it at the other end. There's a three by five card I had on my wall, as a lot of writers do, and it just says the essential pleasures in the work. And it's a quote that I made up for myself almost 40 years ago. And it's a reminder that publishing is interesting. Writers conferences are fun. Gossip is great. But what keeps you doing it is the remembered pleasure. When you got a sentence right, when you got a paragraph right, when you finally got a page right, and then a story right. And it's that remembered glow of the time you got it right and, and you knew it that keeps you going. Well, on that note, we will close. Lou Matthews, thanks again. Great to meet you here over the transom, and I wish you well. Thank you very much, Brad. This is a lot of fun. All right, everybody. There we have it. That is Lou Matthews. And his new novel, Shaky Town, is available as we speak from Tiger Van Books. You can follow Lou on Twitter at Lou Mave. It's at L-O-U-M-A-T-H-E. Again, the novel is called Shaky Town. Go get your copy right away. It's a terrific book. The Other People Podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? This is a listener-supported show. If you like this program, if you listen, 
and you get something from it and you would like to support it, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod for as little as $1 a month, a dollar in the hat every month. And uh, that's great. Or if you want to give a little bit more, you can move up the scale. And as you do, you can get stuff, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription. I will write you uh, a thank you note in the mail. I will sing you happy birthday and send you a voice message on your birthday. Uh, Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. It's absurd what it entails, but I appreciate the support if you can manage it. The Other People Podcast has an official email address. I mentioned it at the top of the show, letters at otherppl.com. If you have thoughts, let me know. And if you want to pre-order my novel, go to bradlisty.com. It's all right there. Just send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase, and I will send you a note and an Other People sticker in the mail. Come on. You can put it on a police car. It'll be fun. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It, too, is free. Go get the app wherever apps are available. It's a quality app, and it's a great way to listen. The Other People Podcast has its own official YouTube channel. The entire archive of this podcast, more than 750 episodes now, uh, it's up there on on, uh, YouTube. Did you know that? Go to YouTube, search for the podcast by name, Other PPL, and then hit the subscribe button. That helps. Another way to help the show is to rate it and review it wherever you happen to listen. Apple Podcasts is a good place. Give it a rating, give it a review, and uh, that helps the algorithm. You know what I mean. Anyway, okay. All right. (laughs) 